Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the BFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Brian Clegg about his new book, 10 Patterns That Explain the Universe. How patterns from diagrams of space-time to particle trails revealed by supercolliders offer clues to the fundamental workings of the physical world. Our universe might appear chaotic, but deep down it's simply a myriad of rules working independently to create patterns of action, force and consequence. In 10 patterns that explain the universe, Brian Clegg explores the phenomena that make up the very fabric of our world by examining 10 essential sequenced systems. From diagrams that show the deep relationships between space and time to the quantum behaviors that rule the way that matter and light interact, Clegg shows how these patterns provide a unique view of the physical world and its fundamental workings. Well, Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. So as we have gone through the unprecedented times of the global pandemic recently, and perhaps we're still really in the midst of it, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and perhaps some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Yeah, I think I've been very lucky, to be honest, because uh, there was an initial panic, I guess, in in book publishing. I'm a writer. Um, and uh, there were difficulties with distribution. But after a while, it settled down and, and the public actually, if anything, were reading more books than usual. So that the, my actual day job of, of writing books hasn't been hugely affected. It's mostly done online anyway. Um, it's meant I haven't been able to do um, talks, uh, which I really enjoy doing. Uh, there's a restarting if I've got the first one towards the end of the month. But um, it hasn't really too much impacted my working life. Obviously, social life have been a little bit different. It's been quite difficult for everybody, of course. Uh, but again, things do seem to be normalizing a little bit now. Did you have to adjust uh, with traveling, for example? Well, not an awful lot because I, I work from home anyway. Um, so it really wasn't hugely different. I do do a day a week at Bristol University, um, which was all done online last year. Uh, and in fact, will be online again this year. So in some ways it was better because frankly, I, I avoid a three hour round trip commute to get to the university. And instead of that, I, I can just come down five minutes before and get started. Oh, there's a bit of silver lining there. <laughs> yes. So can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, of course. Um, I am a science writer. I started off uh, with um, uh, a degree in uh, natural sciences from Cambridge. I originally came from the north of England, from a place called Rochdale, uh, up in the northwest. Um, but my degree special ended up specialising in experimental physics, and I went from there to do a master's in operational research at Lancaster University. That's really a, a mathematical discipline that uh, emerged from the Second World War. And it was originally intended for to help, for instance, decide what the best pattern is to uh, put depth charges out to hit a submarine or something like that. Uh, but post-war, it was picked up by business and also um, by governments to help them 
uh, with anything from you know how to schedule aircraft, which is what I involved end up being involved with, through to um, how to distribute healthcare. Um, so that that was a very different um, aspect um, I, for me. Physics was fascinating, but I couldn't see it as being something I'd have a career with. Whereas operational research was practical and uh, more to do with people. Um, so that that for me was very important to, to be able to get onto that. And my first job uh, was working at British Airways, the airline, uh, doing operational research. Were you always passionate about communicating science to people or did you have to learn it? I think it was definitely learning it. Um, I, I've always written. I've always written things, although it was mostly fiction initially. Uh, and when I was at British Airways, I started writing for uh, computing magazines because operational research uses a lot of computing and it, it's very much integrated with computing. And um, because of that, uh, it was an outlet, if you like, for my writing. I began to realize that that kind of communication of technology was interesting. Mm. Uh, but in the end, what it came back to was my original fascination with science. Uh, I, I've always enjoyed reading popular science books, uh, the books uh, I've, I've enjoyed for a long time. And um, I felt it was a, a good opportunity to make use uh, of my sort of balance of having the scientific background, but also perhaps a slightly wider world experience than, than some academics. Um, and then when opportunities came from that, actually to do science communication live, I found I, I did really enjoy talks, uh, standing up in front of an audience and discussing science. So yeah, I think in some ways I wish I'd discovered it earlier. Mm. Uh, I didn't really come to it until I was about uh, sort of mid 40s. Uh, I think these days there are so many more opportunities for science communication. You know, I know people who go around doing science shows in theatres and that kind of thing. And I'd have loved to have done that if it had been around when I was in my 20s. So what uh, roles did your mentors and your colleagues uh, play along your uh, career journey? And also, do you have any advice for uh, um, maybe some young career researchers or scientists who actually are thinking about bridging their science career with the science communication career? Yeah, I, I think um, it's, it is really helpful, obviously, to have uh, appropriate mentors because I was working in, in business to start with. They tended to be uh, from that. And when I came out of it, I was very lucky to totally accidentally um, hook up with a, a literary agent. Um, it was actually a total accident. I was writing a book about um, the, using the internet in business because I started off by writing business books before I got onto science books. At the time, not many people will probably re remember this anymore, but before Google, uh, the <laughs> leading search engine was one called Alta Vista. And um, so I was trying to research this book. I emailed AltaVista. What I hadn't realized that in the UK, AltaVista.co.uk was actually a literary agency, not the website. Shows you how early this was in terms of search engines, that they hadn't got every AltaVista going. Uh, and the, the agent sort of got in touch with me, discussed about writing and, and felt he was really one who pushed me towards uh, the science side and helped me very much with getting started. I think in terms of uh, researchers perhaps wanting to do a bit of science communication, and it is hugely valuable these days to, to communicate science to the wider public and can be very enjoyable. I think it's really a matter of practice of getting out there, do it, you know, write a blog, um, put articles together uh, and actually send, you know, send them off to uh, magazines or newspapers or whatever. Mostly you get rejected, but occasionally you might get picked up. You might get some feedback. 
uh, and you can, if you find it enjoyable, something it's something you can then grow. Excellent. So your recent book uh, really demonstrates your passion for science, and interestingly, it really brings uh, together seemingly disparate topics, which all have uh, underlying uh, theme, which is patterns. So I was wondering. Can you explain what is the book about and how did you come to writing it? I Yes, of course. Uh, so it's called Ten Patterns That Explain the Universe. Uh, and it really is reflecting on the way patterns are essential to our understanding of everything around us. Um, I mean, if you think about it, even before we think about science, patterns are incredibly important. You know, if you had to learn how to turn on every single light switch individually, you'd never manage to, to exist in the world because you'd, mm. each time you wanted a new room, you wouldn't know how to do it. But we have the pattern of how a light switch works until you go to America and they find they put them on the wall upside down, you don't have a problem. Um, similarly, when we start try to understand the natural world, if everything was totally random, you know, if next time you had a photon, it uh, it travelled at three miles an hour, uh, three kilometres an hour, and the next one was five million kilometres an hour or whatever, if there was no pattern to it, if there was no speed of light or whatever, we would never actually be able to do science because we couldn't predict anything about the real world. We couldn't make predictions. Patterns are what enable us to understand the world. And obviously, you know, even before science, they were about survival too. So, you know, humans needed the pattern of what is an aggressor like? Is if there's something dodgy hiding in the shadows? Um, what's the pattern of a tiger or whatever? Something that alerts me to be wary. So patterns are incredibly important. We're pattern finding um, animals. And if anything, it, we can even find patterns where they don't exist. Uh, so, you know, um, when somebody is superstitious, that's essentially putting together a pattern that doesn't exist, believing that, I don't know, the number mm. 13 has a particular significance where it doesn't. Uh, so patterns are really important, though we can go too far. Uh, but for science, they are absolutely essential to understand the world around us. So why did you uh, decide to put it all together in a book? Um, well, I think the thing about patterns is that, um, in, to some extent, it comes from this mathematical operational research background as well as the physics that mm. um, that's very much driven by things like probability and statistics um, and that's something that always totally fascinated me and I, I always look for opportunities to bring probability and randomness and patterns into the things I write about because it I guess it's at the heart of what has always interested me most uh, so it struck me really that you know having this enthusiasm for this aspect uh, that finding a way to bring it to the public would be very interesting. Now, obviously, what you can't do is write about every possible pattern. So in the end, what I've done in the book is picked out 10 individual ones that have particular significance in different ways, trying to make them you know, as different as possible. So some of them are really quite technical. Some of them are very everyday. But in, even so, they're very important to our everyday lives. All right. So let's delve into the juicy science part. So can you define what is actually a pattern? Um, well, in a sense, it's it's an element of regularity. Um, so it mm -hmm. might be, um, uh, you know, uh, one of the sections in the book is on symmetries, and symmetries are obviously very important patterns in the world. Uh, so, you know, if something is... Uh, 
not changed when you make a reflection of it or when you move it from one place to another uh, or you rotate it. These are all symmetries. So that's one aspect of pattern, uh, this consistency um, across either space or time. Um, so, you know, I mentioned something like the speed of light earlier on, that the fact that there is a consistent speed of light is a pattern. It enables us to mm. work out, for instance, how far away uh, different things were. If the speed of light was always varying, uh, we wouldn't have a clue um, uh, because we would not know, uh, you know, uh, fr from things like redshifts and so forth, we, we wouldn't be able to deduce the things we are able to do now um, because the patterns uh, wouldn't be there. So it, it's very much something that's regular, something that's predictable, um, but that regularity can occur in all sorts of different ways. So uh, are the ways to know whether we actually have a pattern, is it mostly computational, like mathematical ways, or are there other ways to know if uh, something is a pattern? Well, obviously in science, particularly in physics, uh, mm -hmm. which I've mostly dealt with, mathematical aspects are very important uh, and you, we can't deny that. Uh, but if you think of things like symmetries, obviously th there are also visual recognition of patterns, the fact that you can actually see uh, a repetition. Uh, and it's quite interesting uh, that this also occurs in terms of seeing a pattern that isn't there. I mentioned this, this idea of the patterns that aren't there, that um, with very bad understanding randomness, it, you might say that if such a thing is an opposite of a pattern, it's randomness, something that has no structure, uh, no repetition. Um, and we all, we have this weird idea about randomness that what it means is that you don't get, say, clusters of events in one place or clusters of events in one time. But if you didn't have those clusters of events, it actually wouldn't be random. Um, you know, if you think about, I don't know, if you've got a jar full of ball bearings and you drop them on the floor, uh, then if they all landed on the floor, floor nicely, evenly spread out, then there'd be a, there would be a pattern there. But that doesn't happen. Real randomness is that some of them are clustered together, some of them are further apart. And so it, it's very much a matter of recognizing the nature of a pattern, and that could be mathematical or it could be visual. Uh, but either way, I think we, we have a very natural feel for that um, inherent, really, in the way we interact with the world. So how common are the patterns in a world? Because as you explain, um, the opposite of the pattern is uh, well, chaos. And isn't that the second law of thermodynamics that everything seems to be uh, kind of tending towards uh, the entropy? And uh, Yes, the second law of thermodynamics does say that in a closed system, um, that entropy will stay the same or increase. But of course, we aren't in a closed system. Um, and that's why we have so many patterns on, on the Earth. One of the reasons is because we actually have loads of energy coming into the Earth from the sun. And with an energy input into a system, then you can generate order. Patterns uh, quite often are generated, if you like, by the input of energy in, into a system. Uh, but equally, having said that, you, know, you said about the second law of thermodynamics, if there were no patterns, there would be no laws. There's going to be no such thing as the second law of thermodynamics because, you know, tomorrow uh, it could be that entropy uh, always decreases. There would be it's a, very, it's a pattern just to say that entropy always increases. I was wondering about the scales at which patterns can occur. So, uh, do they span all kind of from the microscopic to macroscopic scales? Uh, absolutely, yes. So patterns are 
you know, literally anywhere we do science, and of course we do science all the way from um, the level of uh, atoms and subatomic particles mm. all the way up to the whole universe, patterns are involved. Again, they're different sorts of patterns. You know, as most people know, at the quantum level, uh, then there are probabilities uh, involved, for instance, in where you might find a particle after a certain amount of time. It's not the same kind of pattern as you'd expect in terms of the dynamics of a ball flying through the air, but there still is a pattern. It, it still is, if you like, a mathematical pattern. It's a ju just a different form at absolutely every level, you know, from the, the pattern of a, uh, a DNA molecule, the, the incredibly beautiful and complex pattern that's going on in, inside of a DNA molecule, through to very simple things um, like, um, you know, the number line we taught at school, the patterns are there. They're helping us to inter uh, interact with the world and understand it. Are there some sort of universal rules for the occurrence of patterns, or can they just uh, just emerge? Um, it's it's really again uh, it, most of these things. I think in the most the answer is all the above. Um, that some patterns emerge spontaneously. Um, so you, you can think, for instance. Um, of uh, a sort of self-generating system, something like um, the patterns that uh, occur, um, say, when water moves backwards and forwards over a beach and these patterns build up in the sand. Uh, they are chaotic in a mathem mathematical sense, mm. but even mathematical chaos is a pattern because mathematical chaos isn't randomness. Uh, it is driven by patterns. It's just that the patterns are so sensitive to the initial conditions, how things start off, that we can't predict the way they're going to develop. But chaos, chaos in a mathematical sense is a pattern. It's not randomness. Uh, so uh, yes, uh, they can be self-generated, uh, but equally they can come out of just the nature uh, of physical laws, for instance. So you know the pattern of, um, say, a, um, a snowflake comes out of the physical shape of the water molecule mm. um, and the the angle between the hydrogen atoms in the water molecule is why you end up with those six uh, six fold shapes so it, it's a mix it's both it's set in the physical laws uh, but it also can emerge spontaneously to distinguish a pattern do we require somebody to be actually looking at the pattern so like an outside observer so I'm, I usually think about the uh, flocks of birds, where they fly around, they mm -hmm. form some sort of patterns. But unless I'm watching it, each specific bird is not really aware about the patterns going around it. So am I necessary for this pattern to exist? <laughs> um, I suppose an interesting question. The, the, the murmuration, uh, the, the, which is these collection of birds, it is very much, a uh, again, a, a, a self-generating system, one that uh, emerges spontaneously from small local interactions. You get the big uh, system building up. And as you say, the, the birds are only reacting to very local aspects. Um, so from a bird's viewpoint, yes, it, it doesn't necessarily know that it's part of that bigger pattern and we need to take the step back. Uh, but I, I don't think you could say that you know, it's not one of these things like, you know, does a tree fall in the woods if you don't hear it kind of thing. Mm. I think it is, it, the pattern is clearly there uh, in, in mathematical terms. Um, it's, it exists, uh, but obviously to be able to do something about with it, to make use of it or to interpret it, then you do need the observer typically to do that. 
So you mentioned earlier that sometimes that we see patterns where they don't really exist. So mm-hmm. why do you think that's happening, and uh, why are we so inclined to to see these uh, non-existent patterns? Uh, well, it's partly, as I mentioned, be, be, I think a survival thing. So the fact that we are are looking for predators, always on the lookout. We are potentially a, a prey species originally, um, and there's that. But it's also um, developed, I think, to some extent, in terms of uh, human interactions. So, for instance, we have our brains are very strongly focused on human faces, for instance, and that means we quite often see, for instance, a face where that pattern doesn't really exist. Uh, famously, I don't remember that there was a uh, a feature on Mars um, that, in an initial photograph of it, did look like a face, uh, and there was a lot of speculation about was this created by aliens? This this amazing sort of head. Uh, when they then got a better picture of it, actually didn't have a face pattern at all. But we're very good at believing that a pattern is in there because we are so strongly uh, wired, if you like, to recognize these particular types of pattern like human faces. I think it's to do with the way, uh, it's not an area I'm, I'm an expert in, but it's to do with the way that the brain puts together images. You know, we don't see the world like a video camera. Um the brain actually builds up a picture of the world from shapes and edges and, and color differences. Uh, it's a totally artificial picture of the world, and it is pattern-driven. And it's I think it's because of that that we are quite good at seeing patterns when they aren't really there. But in the end, it's probably better to see a few that aren't really there than to miss the ones that could put your life at risk. So in your book, you bring us 10 patterns that explain the universe. So I was wondering, how did you manage to choose these specific ones? And uh, which ones are those? (laughs) Yeah, I I think whenever you cut down something to a a relatively small number, there can be a huge argument about which ones you include and don't include. And, um, you know, in the end, it's down to personal choice. What what I was trying to do is get a bit of a mix. Uh, So some uh, that are, as I mentioned before, quite technical, uh, perhaps physics-based ones, some that might be something we experience uh, in everyday life, some that are really quite simple and yet have remarkable implications. So I start off with the uh, cosmic microwave background radiation. Uh, so what's sometimes described as the the, uh, the sort of afterglow of the Big Bang. Um, and I move on to Minkowski diagrams, uh, which are a way of showing space and time uh, that um, really were necessary to to understand and extend Einstein's um, special theory of relativity. Uh, we're still in physics uh, as I move on to the kind of patterns of particle trails that something like the Large Hadron Collider at CERN produces. Um, so in the collisions in these uh, these devices, they produce an incredibly complex pattern uh, of trails of particles from which they have to deduce uh, whether what's happening in those reactions. So it's a, a very visual kind of pattern anyway. Um, and then we move on to a more sort of almost artificial pattern. It's something called Feynman, Feynman diagrams uh, developed uh, by the physicist Richard Feynman to help uh, both explain and do calculations, in fact, in quantum physics. Uh, so they're very much a, a human-generated form of diagram, um, as is the Minkowski diagram, where things like the background pattern and the trail patterns are, if you like, natural patterns. 
Um, we've got the periodic table, one of the, surely one of the most famous patterns in existence. And I think practically everybody when they're at school probably had a periodic table on the wall in the science lab. Um, chemists uh, fascinated, obviously, with what's going on there. Uh, but then I moved on to weather patterns, so the patterns that affect our everyday lives very much. Uh, and at the moment, uh, as you know, weather patterns seem to be changing uh, due to climate change. Um, they are of great importance around the world. Um, then moved on to number lines. Uh, and this is a very simple pattern in a way. If you like, it's you can imagine like an, an imaginary ru ruler uh, with naught in the middle heading off to minus infinity in one direction and plus infinity in the other direction with every number on it. It's the basis of uh, arithmetic, but actually it, it's got far more going on in there. And it, it's, a, it's a human devised pattern that nonetheless seems to um, very much reflect reality. Uh, so I think that's quite an interesting one. That's one of my favorites, to be honest. Um, then we've got cladograms, which are patterns used um, in trying to put together the way that different species are related. Uh, so it's not so much sort of a family tree as where speciation happened, where different species split off from their uh, predecessors. Um, so it, it was very, they've been very important in our modern understanding um, of uh, the way that evolution has brought us through different species to the current list of species we have out there. And finishing off two more, we've got something I mentioned already, the double helix of DNA, probably one of the most familiar visual patterns in existence, um, which is so remarkable because it is a pattern of information that it's not just the shape of a molecule, but it actually holds information uh, that's crucial for uh, all bi biological life on Earth. And finally, symmetries, which can be very simple patterns, but um, if you speak to any physicist, uh, they're almost obsessed with symmetry because symmetry is absolutely at the heart of the laws of physics. Um, and symmetry and symmetry breaking are, are crucial to modern physics. So. 10 very different types of pattern, but all about our interaction with the world around us. Oh, that's an excellent eclectic mix of the patterns. <laughs> so as you mentioned, uh, the way we, we sort of perceive patterns, one of the ways is visual and uh, your book uh, sort of really brings it out uh, with a beautiful illustrations. And I'm really fascinated by the cosmic microwave background uh, radiation, because I actually just recently learned that this is one of the major hurdles that we have to interplanetary travel. So it's not really the sun, the sunlight radiation that is really, really bad for us, but it's cosmic background radiation itself. So which one of one of couple of, of these patterns excite you the most? It's a difficult one. I would say, by the way, with the cosmic background radiation, there are, there are two things there. There are cosmic rays which are high energy radiation that is very potentially dangerous. The cosmic microwave background is actually a very, very weak radiation. Um, it's light uh, at the microwave level that, that is actually very weak. Uh, and that itself isn't a danger. It's the cosmic rays that are actually a danger to the, uh, to the travel. All right, but excellent. I, I, I think to me, if you're looking at all those different ones, I, say, I, I love number lines partly because I do have this mathematical background to some extent, but also because it's something so basic, it's something that we learn at primary school when we're little children, and yet it is so fundamental to everything we do in you know our everyday lives. Arithmetic 
might be seem pretty trivial to a mathematician, but actually it's the thing in mathematics that most of us use all the time. Uh, and even at the basic physical level of, you know, what happens if I've got three apples and you give me two apples, it is all number line work. But it's also, you know, it, when you dive into it, you get into all some interesting things like set theory and infinity and all that kind of fun mathematical stuff. So it's, I love the way it goes from something very simple to something quite esoteric. Um, for, so number lines would be one. I think even though my background is physics, the, the DNA double helix is probably one of my other favorites, partly because it's just so visually um, interesting as a thing, but, but also this this idea, because I do have that slight computing background as well, that, that it is, um, you know, it's an information store. Uh, it's a very particular type of information store, um, but it works not on binary um, as you know we do in computers, but if you, I suppose what you might call quaternary, that this is a sort of a four values rather than two values that, that you have in binary. Um, and the way that that builds together to code for um, proteins but, and also uh, that the way it can be modified um, to then, if you like, almost act as a, a sort of instruction set for the construction um, of a living organism, uh, I think is totally fascinating. Another puzzling pattern can be the weather pattern. <laughs> so are we any better on of, on predicting it? Yes, I mean, that, that is certainly the good news. Uh, I think practically any country in the world, people moan about their weather forecasts um, because they seem to always go wrong. But actually, they've got hugely better since, say, the 1980s. Um, it was really in, in, in the last, what, 20, 30 years, that the way that uh, forecasts have done have changed. And this is coming back to this idea of mathematical chaos. The weather is a chaotic system. It's actually where the, the whole study of chaos came from originally back in the 1960s, uh, was from meteorology. And what happens with the weather is just a very small difference in how things set out as the system develops over time can make a huge difference down the line, which is why it's very difficult to predict how the weather is going to evolve over time. Um, and the change that has made the big difference is moving from trying to predict the weather at one go to recognizing it is this chaotic system. And instead of just running one simulation of the weather to say run 50 different simulations with very slight differences in the way things start out and combine those together. Mm. And it's because we got those say 50 shots at it that you now see weather forecasts that will say perhaps there's a 10% chance of rain in your area in the next couple of hours. And what that means is 10% of the models predicted rain in, in those hours. It's actually reflecting the number of, of the runs of the model with a slightly different uh, versions that produce the outcome. And as a result of that, they have become much more accurate. But chaotic systems get worse and worse as you get further ahead in time. And no matter how good they are, realistically, we don't think they could sensibly have a good weather prediction outside five, six, seven days. So the longer term forecasts uh, are pretty much guesswork. And by the time you get to uh, maybe four weeks out, by far the best way of predicting the weather is saying what are things like at this time of year typically. Uh, that's actually better than anything you can do mathematically mm. because it is such a chaotic system. 
So weather and climate forecasts are one of those really important patterns, isn't it, and have, have been throughout human history. So I was uh, wondering if we could reflect a little bit on how important are patterns for our society? I, I, well, obviously, um, it, ha it impacts society in many different ways. Uh, so, you know, science is one input to that. We can't get away from that. You know, having just come or partly come through the COVID pandemic, uh, the importance of science and of patterns mm -hmm. has been coming through because, you know, all the stuff that we, we get uh, in the news that we, we see online, that we get a news broadcast where they, they have, uh, you know, they're talking about uh, the R rate, the, the, you know, the value at which it will spread, or um, they're talking about the, uh, the ways that patterns of um, deaths, patterns of people becoming ill, uh, about the impact of vaccines, all these things are reflecting how mathematical patterns uh, that are involved in the way that the virus spreads are impacting every, everyday lives. So I think that's brought home very strongly the, the COVID pandemic, how important it is. But obviously it was there already, whether it was in these medical type patterns, you know, diagnosis, medical diagnosis is all about finding a pattern, um, or whether it's about how politics works, um, you know, how a, an opinion poll manages to uh, forecast uh, how people may or may not vote or whatever. It's all about trying to find patterns right through to the kind of patterns that, you know, your local supermarket has to deal with in realising that if the weather's going to be good, they need to have more ice cream available or whatever. Patterns are all there throughout our lives, whether it's in business or science or politics, influencing society. So patterns, in a sense, are the foundations of our models, are they? They, they are. They, they are, in a sense, uh, a model is a... Is, is, is creation built around a pattern. So mm. we, when we make a model, uh, we make assumptions about how what's happening in a system in a mathematical way. Uh, typically, uh, we put that pattern together and run it and see what it predicts and see how that then matches against experiment or against observation. Um, so, you know, science is all about generating patterns in models, comparing them with reality, tweaking the model uh, to have a better fit. What is really interesting to me uh, when I was going through all of these uh, different uh, uh, patterns is that although they're all different, you can you still see something that's uh, uh, connecting them. And in some sense that you can apply lessons or some of the methods for, from one to, uh, to, to the next one, even though some of them are physical, another, another patterns are biological. So just this sort of transferability of uh, of their um, intrinsic properties. It's just so fascinating. Yes, absolutely, you're right. Um, and in part, of course, it's because mathematics has a very wide application. So one of the things that links together many of these patterns is mathematics, but equally, of course, underlying anything, whether it's biology or the weather, whatever, whatever you're dealing with, you are still dealing with particles and forces um, you are still dealing with, you know, the fundamentals of physics underlying every science in many ways. I'm a bit biased in this respect, I suppose, with a physics background, but the fact is it, it is there underneath. Um, and so it has that linking role. So, you know, the, the, the molecules of DNA, it's down to obviously the, the 
the physics really of how they fit together, the way that that pattern emerges uh, and the way that weather uh, happens is essentially down to interaction of vast numbers uh, of air molecules uh, and of the, uh, you know, sunlight coming in, so the photons uh, from the sun and so forth. So yes, you have that underlying physics, but also, as we said, mathematics does link things together very nicely in many ways too. Did you find it easy to explain uh, the patterns to other people? Do you think people have this sort of visceral understanding of what pattern is? Well, I think that where it did help having a quite heavily illustrated book like this, mm-hmm. that m- most of the books I write are pretty well all text with just the occasional illustration. And, and normally that's fine. But I think when you are dealing with something that has such a, a visual impact as patterns, it can be really helpful to have good, good illustrations that show those patterns and how they, uh, how we relate to them and what they're showing us. So I, I think that helps a lot. Uh, and in the end, you know, the job of a science writer is to make what can sometimes be very complicated science accessible. Um, so it's partly in the words, but I think also the images help an awful lot in this particular book. So what discoveries about yourself maybe, or the society along your journey to writing your book 10 patterns that explain the universe surprised you the most? That's an interesting question. I, I think in some ways it's it's digging into the a little bit of the historical context um, that is quite is possibly one of the more surprising and fun parts because one of the things I think that can help to explain something relatively complex to the general public is to give some historical and personal context. Um, and so it can be sometimes very little things like, for instance, uh, when the cosmic microwave background radiation was first detected, um, they actually thought it was a problem with the um, uh, with the receiver they were using. It was a kind of crude radio telescope. Um, and there was this background hiss. Uh, mm. And what they initially wanted to do was actually try to get rid of it. They thought there's something wrong with the system. Mm. Uh, they discovered that there, was, there were a pair of pigeons nesting in their telescope um, and they deposited uh, what they rather primly referred to in, in a paper as, as white dielectric material um, <laughs> oh, dielectric yeah. material on the uh, the telescope. So they cleaned it all out and they just did it again. So then they took the pigeons uh, away a number of miles and, and they came back. So in the end, unfortunately, they had to shoot the pigeons. Um, and then it carried on anyway. So it's these little details in, in the way that the patterns starting to be recognized and developed, I think can be some of the most sort of fun and surprising aspects as, as you go into and, and find out more about it. That is such an interesting concept that you mentioned that they were surprised there was a pattern and they, were, they weren't really believing it. So maybe we have this sort of mechanism of not trusting seeing a pattern because we know that we are we have the preconceptions of finding patterns anywhere? I think that's true. Uh, I think the other thing is that this was, uh, if you like, before uh, modern electronic communications. And there were people who actually were looking for this pattern um, at other universities, and they weren't talking to each other. And it was a pure coincidence that the researchers uh, at Bell Labs who actually found the radiation happened to talk to somebody about something else and mentioned in passing this weird thing. 
And the other person was able to put them in touch with the theor theoreticians who were saying, you know, we ought to be finding this background radiation uh, and put two and two together and actually recognize it as a pattern. Mm. Um, so I think it was quite interesting, you know, also in, the, in these days, probably it would have happened a lot quicker because there would be better communication going on uh, and people would be looking out for it uh, in different ways. And you yourself, have you ever gone down the rabbit hole of trying to find patterns where they, well, shouldn't really exist, for example, in a multiple digits of number pi? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I, I actually, I think because of this enthusiasm for probability and randomness and all that, uh, I've, I've never wanted there to be patterns where they don't really belong. Um, I mean, I, I think sometimes there are patterns, sort of patterns, that you enjoy but don't necessarily um, uh, don't necessarily almost get your head around. So uh, I suppose classic is when they started thinking about uh, fractals um, and uh, the Benoit Mandelbrot um, wrote a paper about basically how far was it around um, Great Britain? What was the distance around the island of Great Britain? Um, which seems an obvious thing. Everybody knew how far it was around the island. Um, but then he effectively pointed out that if you start going into all the nooks and crannies, it actually becomes a different distance. And the more of the little nooks and crannies, the more little extras you put in, um, then the more complexity is emerging in, in the shape and it gets further and further. And in fact, the, the distance around the coastline can vary in terms of thousands of kilometers, uh, similarly on borders between countries, depending upon how straight a line you use, what length of measure you use. And so these people in looking for a, a pattern to explain what's happening can sometimes discover that there is almost this rabbit hole, that the, the more detail you go into, the more complex the pattern becomes, which is what fractals really are all about, that it's a kind of special kind of pattern. The more you dig into the pattern, the more emerges uh, from it. So I think the rabbit hole is actually quite a good image for that. <laughs> no, it's absolutely mind boggling with the fractals and coastlines. They just keep going and going. Yeah, yeah. Well, is there anything you would like to add that we perhaps haven't uh, covered in our discussion? It's an interesting one. I, I think one of the things, you know, I'd certainly be always interested to know is what other patterns really do interest people? Because these were, mm -hmm. you know, my particular set. In fact, I, I don't know if I ought to do this, but I, I'd almost turn it around on you and say, you know, would do you have another different favorite pattern? Is there something that inspires you in terms of a pattern? Perhaps pattern that uh, where pattern do not exist. I really want to know how to precisely know that there is no pattern at any time, you know, towards infinity. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's a little bit silly, but uh, it just something that really fascinates me. How do you actually know that somewhere close to infinity, there's no, not a pattern? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Yeah, and I, th I think that's a real opportunity, you know, uh, to to think beyond. Um, any particular list uh, and, and look at how patterns influence us. Uh, you know, there's a lot of um, work going on at the moment on how the brain works, how we interact with the universe uh, around us, how we understand things. Um, and that is all has an element of, of this pattern connection. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that, that there's always lots of fascinating new stuff coming out 
that is all about patterns and how we interact with them. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what would be your next project? Um, yeah, so I'm just finishing off um, a short book. Uh, I'm a series editor uh, on a series of books that look at new and in interesting topics or ones, uh, science topics or ones that uh, have a particular interest to us in terms of their impact on us. Uh, I've just written one, uh, but it's again going through the editorial phase at the moment on um, game theory um, because mm. you know games and how we interact with them uh, is something that interests me. Again, operational research, my, my background uh, is very strongly linked to game theory. Uh, and I always quite like an opportunity to bring that kind of mathematics into a more uh, sort of social and, and wider aspect. So that's mostly what I'm working on at the moment. Uh, actually, the, the next thing I have lined up is, funnily enough, is not a book or an article, but it's a story. Um, I do occasionally write science fiction stories. Um, and uh, there's a magazine in America that has commissioned me to write a science fiction story. So that my next actual piece of work will be um, a short story science fiction of some sort, probably vaguely computer-related because it's a computer-related magazine I'm writing it for. Ooh, that sounds super interesting. <laughs> it's fun. I, I really like the, you know, the different challenge of writing fiction. Uh, and you might think it's totally different that fiction and non-fiction are totally different. But actually, when I talk to people about how to write popular science, how to write science for the general public, one of the important things is it's still about storytelling. It's still about narrative knowing how to put a story across, now to knowing how to engage your reader and get them excited in what you're, uh, read, they're reading about and wanting to turn the page and find out what happens next. So there is actually a much stronger relationship, I'd suggest, between fiction and nonfiction than we sometimes realise. So where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Uh, well, the easiest way is my website, which is Brian Clegg, that's B-R-I-A-N-C-L-E-G-G, brianclegg.net. Uh, that has all my books on. As it happens, um, 10 Patterns is just about to go on it because it doesn't actually come out um, as I'm speaking to you this minute. But when you hear this, by the time you hear this, it will be on uh, the website. And um, I also, uh, on um, quite regularly on Twitter. It's just at Brian Clegg. So again, B-R-I-A-N-C-L-E-G-G. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been truly fascinating discussion. Thanks very much. It's been lovely to speak to you.